Turn in your scriptures and keep your Bibles uh, open. It's 752. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light, and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this, uh, this writer that I like, uh, Nicholas Kristof, he has a column in the New York Times, and he's done a lot of relief work all over the world. I watched this documentary about Bill Gates this week, and he was in there a lot talking about all the things that they're doing to try to help people all around the world. And he's, he's a very interesting person, and he has a column. It's, I think it's about once a year, at, especially um, it's at Christmas, where he interviews different pastors and ask them, because he, I guess he's not really sure where, where he stands. I mean, he grew up a Christian, but he has all these questions. And the, the column is just, am I a Christian? And I thought that, uh, I want to read a large section of it. So one of the, uh, a couple of years ago, he asked uh, Pastor Tim Keller, and just for sort of the reformed, you know, evangelical perspective, um, and this is, this is part of their interview. It's, it's a little bit lengthy, but it's so good that I just wanted to read, read the whole thing to you. And I, it's, I edited out about 80% of the interview, and you should all read it. But here's what it says. Uh, Tim, I deeply admire Jesus and his message, but I'm also skeptical of themes that have been integral to Christianity. The virgin birth, the resurrection, the miracles, and so on. Since this is the Christmas season, let's start with the virgin birth. Is that an essential belief, or can I mix and match? And, and uh, Tim Keller says, If something is truly integral to a body of thought, you can't remove it without destabilizing the whole thing. A religion can't be whatever we desire it to be. If I'm a member of the board of Greenpeace, and I come out and say climate change is a hoax, then they will ask me to resign. I could call them narrow-minded, but they would rightly say that there have to be some boundaries for dissent, or you couldn't have a cohesive, integrated organization, and they'd be right. It's the same with any religious faith. And the resurrection, must it really be taken literally? That was his question, and here's the response. Jesus' teaching was not the main point of of his mission. He came to save people through his death for sin, and his resurrection. 
So his important ethical teaching only makes sense when you don't separate it from these historic doctrines. If the resurrection is a genuine reality, it explains why Jesus can say that the poor and the meek will inherit the earth. St. Paul said, without a real resurrection, Christianity is useless. 1 Corinthians 15, 19. The Christian church is inexplicable if we don't believe in a physical resurrection. It is difficult to come up with any historical alternative explanation for the birth of the Christian movement. It is hard to account for thousands of Jews virtually overnight worshiping a human being as divine when everything about their religion and culture conditioned them to believe that it was not only impossible, but deeply heretical. The best explanation for the change was that many hundreds of them had actually seen Jesus with their own eyes. Then he asks, So where does that leave people like me? Am I a Christian, a Jesus follower, a secular Christian? Can I be a Christian while doubting the resurrection? I wouldn't draw any conclusion about an individual without talking to him or her at length, but in general, if you don't accept the resurrection or other foundational beliefs as defined by the Apostles' Creed, I'd say you are on the outside of the boundary. Can I ask, do you ever have doubts? Do most people of faith struggle at times over these kinds of questions? Yes and yes. In the Bible, the book of Jude tells Christians to be merciful to those who doubt. We should not encourage people to simply stifle all doubts. Doubts force us to think things out and re-examine our reasons, and that can, in the end, lead to stronger faith. So it's, it's, that is almost exactly like question 22 in the catechism of, you know, what, what must I believe to be a Christian? Um, there's one other question. What I admire most about Christianity is the amazing good work it inspires people to do around the world. But I'm troubled by the notion that people go to heaven only if they have a relationship with Jesus. Doesn't that imply that billions of people are consigned to hell because they grew up in non-Christian families around the world? That Gandhi is in hell. Again, really similar question to the one that's asked in the catechism. And here's what Tim Keller says. The Bible makes categorical statements that you can't be saved except through faith in Jesus. John 14, 6, Acts 4, 11 to 12. I'm very sympathetic to your concerns, however, because this seems so exclusive and unfair. There are many views of this issue, so my thoughts cannot be considered the Christian response, but here they are. You imply that really good people, like Gandhi, should also be saved, not just Christians. The problem is that Christians don't believe anyone can be saved by being good. If you don't come to God through faith in what Christ has done, you would be approaching on the basis of your own goodness. This would, ironically, actually be more exclusive and unfair, since so often those that we tend to think of as bad, the abusers, the haters, the selfish, have themselves often had abusive and brutal backgrounds. Christians believe that it is those who admit their weakness and need for a Savior who get salvation. If access to God is through the grace of Jesus, then anyone can receive eternal life instantly. That is why born-again Christianity will always give hope and spread among the wretched of the earth. So, 
what must a Christian believe? A Christian must believe in, in grace, that it's not dependent on our goodness, that it's about faith and trusting in Jesus and what he's done for us. Um, essentially, you know, John 3.16, this, uh, this idea that, that if we're going to live lives of, of faithfulness, that we're going to live lives of gratitude, we have to start with faith. You know, even, when, even in the really difficult questions, uh, like and our doubts about miracles or these, these core messages of salvation through, through God's grace. Um, so tonight we're going to talk about this faith and how it, how it engages both our minds and, and our hearts. Uh, so faith is, faith is a gift. Faith, even, even faith is a gift. It's not something that we summon up in our own strength or work hard for, but it's a gift of the Holy Spirit that's given to us. The, the, dif, the dictionary definition of faith is this. Complete trust or confidence in someone or something. So if you think about that, everybody has faith. It's just a matter of what do we place our faith in. Is it in God or is it in something else? And Jesus, um, Jesus is offering us, you know, not a life that's free from doubt, not a perfect life, not a life without struggles, but he's offering us this life that no matter what we go through, we can grow more and more faithful. And we can see that there's, you know, there's more things in the rearview mirror that we look back on our life and say, God was faithful through that. He took my little mustard seed of faith and he, he used it and he grew it. So, this Nicodemus story, because a lot of, you know, a lot of us just memorized John 3.16. But we have to remember that it's this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus, who was this teacher of the, of the Jewish people. And he was, he was very, you know, he was religious. He knew the scriptures. He was a leader. He was very um, smart. He was a great teacher. All these things. And you would think that he would be content. But he wasn't. He was curious enough about this sort of upstart rabbi that he went to him but he didn't go in the middle of the day. He didn't go in the town square. He went at night because he didn't want anyone to know that. But something was missing in his life. All of his religion, all of his sacrifices, all of his good works still left him unsettled. And he had a lot, he had a lot to lose. You know, his job, his social standing, everything. If he went over to Jesus, he would lose all of that. One of the uh, commentators on this passage, Dale Bruner, he said, Jesus begins by showing us that even some people who think they're already God's people, even the highly respected teacher himself, all human beings without exception, desperately need a deep change in their lives in order to be with God. That's the story of, of Nicodemus coming to Jesus. And Jesus talks to him about, about faith, which I said, it's, it's a matter of the head and a matter of the heart. 
But the catechism talks about this sure knowledge that we have. And I love the way that it talks about it, that it's sort of like not somebody else, it's not this general idea, it's not sort of people over there that have had their sins forgiven. It's not people over there that have, you know, eternal salvation, but it's me and you, me and you, us, ourselves, that we have that assurance that, yeah, we've messed up, but Jesus has forgiven us. Yeah, we've messed up, but we have a future that's with God in heaven. We have paradise that's awaiting us. That's what the Holy Spirit does through the gospel, through the good news. Because Nicodemus was, he was well-educated, but had it, you know, had it touched his mind? Had it really hit him? Had he received that, that, the faith that is a gift from the Holy Spirit? Um, he, he has, he knows a lot of things, but is he wise in the things of God? At least, you know, at this point. The, the catechism also talks about this wholehearted trust, this wholehearted trust. And that to me is, is like a heart issue because when the Bible's talking about the heart, it's talking about, you know, the seat of our, what we're putting our faith in, what we're putting our trust in. And we just, you know, we just had Valentine's Day, and whenever we talk about heart and love, we tend to go to this sappy place, you know, kind of a sentimental place. But that's not how the Bible thinks about it. Um, the, the heart is where we go after the things that we want, the things that we desire. Do we desire God's kingdom, or we, do we desire these, these other sort of things? And that's a, that's, that's where faith comes into the picture. Um, Lily, you know, my wife likes to do a lot of, um, you know, artwork and drawing and creative things. And she made, uh, she made this little uh, drawing, <laughs> you know, in watercolor and everything. It's beautiful. And it says, faith grows during storms. Um, faith grows during storms. None of us want to go through a storm. None of us want to go through hard things. None of us wants to, to grieve and experience loss and heartache. And yet that's a lot of time where faith comes in. Um, who, who can we trust when things are uncomfortable, when things aren't going well? Um, we all trust in something. Maybe it's ourselves, our own intellect, our own ability to get through things, you know, that we can tough it out. But if we cling to Jesus, he gets us through those, those times. If we center our faith on him. You know, they say that if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. And as I think back on, you know, my life and even, um, you know, I, just, I was thinking about the last 15 years because that's really um, how long that Lily and I have been together and I think about all the ups and downs of that. You know, just the, um, the, the death of, the, the deaths of, of loved ones. Um, you know, family members and um, my mother-in-law and people we are really close with. Um, you know, cancer. Um, mo- you know, cross-country moves and um, times of financial hardship and friendships that fell apart and... Um, you know, people that we're really close with getting divorced and all of these things. You know, life is so hard. 
There's all these challenges that come through life, but I can honestly say that in the most difficult chapters, that's where my faith has grown the most. And that's where I've seen God's hand you know, in my life. And at a certain point, you actually become thankful for those trials because you see that that's what God uses to, to grow your faith and to, um, to show you how good he is and his love. Um, because that's what God wants, right? God wants us to grow. God wants us to, to mature. God wants us to be more and more like Jesus. Kind of like what I was saying this morning, to have that family resemblance, to actually look like God, to be kind like God, like God is kind. And I love, I love, love, love that verse. I always think about it. Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. When I was 22 years old, I was a music director at a church, and we had this wonderful older pastor who's probably 70 or 75. He was the visitation pastor. And I remember one time we were just talking, and I was going through a hard time, but he said to me, God hasn't brought you this far to let you go now. God hasn't brought you this far to let you go. And that just always stuck with me. God's promises are with us. He's always going to walk alongside us. And that's, that's why we can put our faith in him. That's why we can trust him. And that's, that's where John 3.16 really, you know, really hits us. Because God loves us so much. He loves you and he loves me so much that he gave his son. And that, you know, that hits us on a, on a head level. <laughs> that hits us on a heart level. And that, that gives us what we're looking for. That gives us this joy. And the really, the really amazing thing, the thing that gives me so much hope and trust that, you know, not just for myself, but for my loved ones and for God's timing, is that this isn't the last that we hear of Nicodemus. This isn't the last we hear of this teacher who was very curious about Jesus. Later on, um, at the end of... John, in chapter 19, it talks about how Nicodemus became a believer in Jesus and was one of the people that cared for him after, um, you know, when he was crucified. And, and he became a person who left that all behind, left all of his, you know, acclaim, all of his, you know, earthly wisdom, all of his training in religion in order to have this relationship with Jesus, in order to put his faith in him alone. That's the, that's the call. That's what the Holy Spirit can do. So as we go to the table, we're remembering that. We're remembering God's promises and all that he's done. Would you please pray with me? God, thank you that you have, you have saved us, that you have saved Uh, broken people like us, that you are mending back together through your your grace and your love. Lord, thank you that, uh, that your word is true and that the things that we've heard tonight, they're the truest things in, in the universe, that we can depend on you, that we can count on you, that you'll never leave us or forsake us that even in the hard times, you bring redemption. So deepen our trust in you. Help us to know that our lives are not our own, but they belong to you. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.